The reading for this morning is taken from the book of Jonah. We'll be reading Jonah chapter 1, and you'll be able to find that on page 1067 of your pew Bible. Page 1067 of your pew Bible. Jonah 1. The Word of God. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land. But they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at the book of Jonah, we don't always feel like Jonah is someone that we can relate to, do we? Perhaps some of you ladies will relate to him a little bit more since I, uh, was, it was brought to my attention. I was reminded again of the fact that you had just finished doing a study in the book of Jonah 
So maybe you can relate to him a little bit more. But for the rest of us, it's not necessarily easy to feel connected to this person. We read about the call of Isaiah, for example, to be a prophet. We see the description of the glory of the Lord, and we hear out of the thunder of his majesty, the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? We hear Isaiah respond to him saying, here I am, send me. And we think, yeah, that's me. If God told me to do something, I would say, here I am, send me. Or perhaps we prefer to see ourselves like Jeremiah, saying, his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it back and I cannot. But to say that when the Lord calls, we run, and not only do we run, if you think about the fact that Nineveh was to the northeast and Joppa and the Mediterranean Sea, the direction of Tarshish, was about as far west as you could get from that. You're running as far away as you can in the opposite direction. We'd rather not associate ourselves with someone like Jonah. He's not the kind of prophet that we'd like to align ourselves. And yet, he is the one we're the most like, isn't he? How often do we volunteer for tasks in God's kingdom work, calling, here I am, send me. How often don't we find ourselves rather saying, can't someone else do this? How often do we have it that we know that God calls us to do something in his word, and yet we say, I'd rather not do that. It might not be something as big as going to a foreign city and proclaiming to a people who don't know your God to repent, otherwise their city will be destroyed. But still, even in the little things, we don't always respond in the way that we should. While we might not wish destruction on our enemies, how often, in the case of our enemies, would it not be easier to stand back and let things fall apart, like Jonah preferred to do? They're just getting what, they're, what they deserve. Let their lives fall apart. We see in Jonah the same reluctance that we find in so many of our own hearts to be involved in kingdom work, to respond to the calls of God. But with Jonah, he at least recognizes that God's kingdom work through real people will actually make a difference. In fact, that's the reason why he's running. And when it comes to kingdom work, today's Christian doesn't even always recognize that. And we tend to fall back on apathy instead. Yet despite all of that, we see God working in this man, Jonah. And that should give us hope. Because not only is God using Jonah for an amazing task, a task in which he shows that his interests lie even beyond the borders of Israel, his grace extends beyond just his holy people. Jonah, in his work, also becomes one of the most vivid living examples of what the Messiah will be and what he will do. As broken 
and as disobedient as he was. This narrative is placed in Scripture from start to finish to direct our eyes to Christ. How this book exactly does that is something that we'll be looking at in the coming weeks. Today we'll do that by looking at the first chapter of Jonah. And we'll do that with God's command to Jonah as our theme. Running with, pardon me, we'll, we'll, we'll do that with Jonah's response to God's command as our theme. Running from God. And we'll see, first of all, a rebellious flight. Secondly, a reluctant confession. And third, an undeserved salvation. Now, Jonah is a prophet. And as with most prophetic books, it begins in the same manner. We see the opening words there. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. This is a pretty familiar formula for those of you who know more of the prophets, who have read from more of the prophets. It's a formula that comes up in the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles. We read in Joel 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Same in Micah, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth. Again, you'll find this in the prophecies of Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and many more. The introduction of this book is typical in two ways. First of all, it's typical in that it is the word of the Lord that's being proclaimed. What followed was not just something that came from man, but it was from God. Jonah realized that he was receiving something from God. We find confirmation of that in the New Testament. In 2 Peter 1, verse 20 to 21, we read, For no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This was the word of God that came to him. And it should be taken seriously. Prophecies in Scripture, true prophecies in Scripture, never came to those whom they were destined for by the will of man. In fact, it would often be easier for those men who were carrying that word to be quiet, just to stay quiet. But true prophecy came from God and therefore had to be proclaimed to the people. Again, it's typical that Jonah himself is mentioned by name. The fact that God used a particular prophet to bring in his word was more common. But here's where it gets interesting. Because of the fact that it was Jonah who was going to be doing this proclamation, that part would have had people sitting up and taking notice when they read this. Let me explain. The book of Jonah is not the first time that Jonah appears in the Bible. We see him appearing even as early as 2 Kings 14, verse 25. There, the narrator makes specific mention of the fact that it's Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer, who is the one whom God used to tell the people that he would bless Israel under Jeroboam II by allowing it to expand its borders significantly. The days of Jeroboam became days of great prosperity and national pride. And Jonah was involved in this. Now it's speculation to suggest that because of this, Jonah was a nationalistic prophet. Some commentators make a 
point of that, saying he was a loyalist, and this isn't exactly brought out in our passage. But the fact that was that he was invested in the nation, and he did proclaim a lot of blessings for them, which were fulfilled. He was able to see the fruit of his labor and would have wanted good for his nation. To proclaim the gospel to enemies of his nation, people who are preying on the borders of Israel, people who are a constant threat, that wouldn't have been pleasant for him. And so that does quite a bit to explain the very next line that we find in Jonah. If it weren't for that fact, the very next line would be a lot more shocking than it already is, even though it is already shocking. Because instead of proclaiming, like we find everywhere else in the Bible after those opening lines, we find the words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, and then the command. And instead of proclaiming, we read, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He ran in exactly the opposite direction. Now, it's not exactly clear where Tarshish is. Some people uh, place it in different locations without much success. The word can actually also just simply mean sea in the context of traveling to distant coastlands. He went to sea. Far away to sea. Anywhere where you were going, as long as you were going far enough away, could potentially be described as going to Tarshish. Jonah essentially says, you're kidding, right? You're not. Well, I'm not going to spend time here. I'm, I'm getting out of here. And he goes. He goes to distant coastlands, as far away as he can get. It's shockingly disrespectful. You could consider the fact that Nineveh was the capital city of one of Israel's greatest enemies. From 700 BC until its fall in 612, it was the capital of Assyria, one of the most brutal of empires of its, in its day. And it was because of their brutality that the entire book of Nahum is dedicated to their destruction, specifically the destruction of Nineveh. We read in Nahum 3, Woe to the bloody city! It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charge with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. That was the description of Nineveh. Nineveh was instrumental in the destruction and suffering of countless numbers of people, Israel among them. It's no wonder that Jonah wouldn't have been quick to go prophesy to them. He wanted to see them fall. He didn't want them to repent. Their wickedness was great, and he wanted to see the full effects of it. 
even in the face of that, though, to run in the other direction was terribly disobedient. And yet he runs. That's so often the case, isn't it? When God asks us to do something that we'd rather not do, we run. We might run by diving into work. We might run by getting involved in things that we shouldn't be. We might run just by ignoring the situation, but we run in different ways. When we're called to step up in one situation or another, to be a man of God or to be a woman of God, we run. But the reality of it is that we can't run forever because we know the truth. And God teaches us the reality of this in Psalm 139, the verses 7 to 12. We sang that this morning. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. We have a God who is everywhere. Sometimes our God will let us, like Jonah, have some measure of success in our running. As one commentator said, God sometimes not only suffers the wicked to advance prosperously in their sins, but also does not immediately restore the godly. He gives them every facility for a time in their downward course in order that they may know themselves more and that the glory of God may become thereby more manifest. Foolish then is the sinner who, having begun life prosperously, concludes that the end will be equally happy. Things might go well, but we'd be foolish to conclude that the end will be equally happy if we continue in sin. Those are strong words. But equally strong is the hope that comes with it. For if we have continued in our trajectory of sin, if sin does end up in disaster, or even if it doesn't, but by the grace of God we've been brought to the realization of our sin, we have a God who is there. We can run, we can flee, but no matter how far we run, we have a God who is there. No time is too late to repent and turn to God. There will be a time when it's too late, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses whether willing or not. But it is not this time. It isn't now. Now the same God from whom we cannot escape is also there if we repent and face up to what we've done. He's there for us. For now, we have the grace of God. This brings us to our second point. That's the realization that Jonah is first brought to. He goes down to the coast. He's spoken to the captain, paid the price of the voyage, and he's boarded the ship, and now away they go. As they sail, the trip starts off reasonably well, as you would expect any other trip to go. You can almost imagine him coming up and saying, everything looking good, captain? 
Oh, sure, Captain replies, or else we'd never have left port. The edge of stormy season trips were rare, and storm season trips, the winter, just didn't happen. You can think of the Apostle Paul. He was right at the beginning of the stormy season. They made a landfall in one city on Cyprus, and then they wanted to winter in a better harbor. And they took a trip, even though it was from one part of an island to another, and it wasn't a very long trip, and they thought they could make it safely. They took a trip that was very unusual. Jonah would have come down in a time when you didn't have such weather. He, came, he would have come down in a time in which they would have just had usual shipping going back and forth. Otherwise, people would not have agreed to take him. It's, the danger of the stormy season is great. It might seem already a little bit difficult if you've got the north wind coming into the sound, here in Owen Sound, and you want to take a boat out onto the water. But imagine for a moment that, but exponentially grown, waves that are much higher, that'll wash over your ship, that'll beat at the timbers, that'll drag it down. No, he would have come in a time that the shipping was carrying out its regular routine. Relieved, he goes down below and he falls asleep to the rocking of the boat. It's hard work running from God. Knowing that you're sinning, but going ahead anyways, is stressful emotionally and it takes a toll physically. Maybe the words of David in Psalm 32 were somewhere in the back of his head, as perhaps they are in yours in such times. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by heat of summer. It's exhausting being knowingly caught up in sin. It's exhausting running from God. In addition to this, Jonah would have had to say goodbye to everything he knew and loved in short order in order to hop on the ship and leave as fast as possible. He's just done. And he falls fast asleep. But sin doesn't let you sit for long. And while you may think you're the only one affected by your decision, those around you will be affected by its consequences as well. You can see this coming to life in Jonah's life. Suddenly, a storm makes its appearance on the horizon. It seems to have been out of season and unexpected, which is why he specifically says, the Lord sent a storm. Now, this gives you a bit of an idea of how exhausted Jonah really was. He doesn't hear the men crying out to prepare for the storm. They know the storms that the Mediterranean could whip up and they're afraid. He doesn't notice the creaking timbers of the ship. There's terror in the air after one man after another realizes that no human hand can save them anymore. They're completely at the mercy of the wind and the waves. One after another they start to cry out to their gods but none are there to hear them. Throw the cargo overboard, comes the shout. Maybe the ship will last a little longer. You'll be ruined. You'll be bankrupt. 
Someone says to the captain, his whole livelihood is at stake here. And not only his, but that of all the men who are financially backing his voyage. At least we'll live a little longer, comes the response. And everything goes overboard. But it's no use. The wind howls more. The waves get more furious. Everyone is just holding on and crying out loudly in prayer, hoping that their God will hear them over the storm. Everyone but the captain looks around and there's one man missing. The captain goes below in astonishment. The man who came on board back in Joppa is still asleep? How in the world is he sleeping through this storm? They didn't ask questions of him before. They didn't bother him before, but they certainly need him now. At such a time as this, all prayers are needed. And so he wakes up Jonah with the words, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us that we may not perish. Now, while the word God is in capitals here in this verse, it's not likely he's referring to the God of Jonah. He's probably forgotten who Jonah's God is by this point. But he's just desperate for any divine intervention. Jonah wakes up startled. Chances are, he guesses this storm isn't by chance. Maybe there was a possibility that it was by chance. But yet, even though he knows that it's probably his fault, he doesn't volunteer any info. Isn't that the way of things? You can see things falling apart around you, and you know the outcome. You know the consequences. But still you hold out. Maybe, just maybe, you won't have to answer for it anyway. But he realizes around him that the men aren't ready to leave it to chance. They bring out the lots. Someone must be responsible. They probably don't know the words of Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. But they certainly know the principle. In this situation, it's all they have left. So they cast lots, and the lot falls to Jonah. Suddenly fearing him and not wanting to anger him, Maybe someone had offended him and the storm is punishment because someone offended him. Not wanting to anger him, they ask him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? They may have taken him on board, no questions asked. Sure, he told them he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, but who can take that seriously? At that point, they were more interested in his money than the motivation of some superstitious character. But at this point, they're certainly interested. And it's at this point that Jonah realizes that he can no longer hide what he's done. He also realizes the magnitude of his sin. He's reached the point that so many do. His sin is going to destroy not only him, but everyone on board with him, unless he tells the truth. Only confession will save him now. And so he speaks candidly. I am a Hebrew, he says, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men who are with him tremble in fear. Because they remember now that he told them that he was running. Everything Jonah has said is true. 
Every crazy thing he said about running from God is true. And this God proved that he's not just a regional God bound to one country and place. He's the God who made the sea and dry land and holds all of it in his control. And he's proving it very vividly at this point in time. They look around, they can see it. In this moment, Jonah is evangelizing more powerful than ever before to men beyond the borders of Israel. In this moment, he is speaking and no one is doubting the truth of his words. As with anyone today, in their deepest sin, confession of what they've done and pointing to the God who holds them accountable can have a powerful impact on those around. But confession isn't enough. Confession alone won't save anyone. And in that moment, on that boat, that was the reality they faced very clearly. What they needed was salvation. And that salvation could only be received by divine intervention. What shall we do? They cry. And Jonah knows. He dared to openly defy the God of heaven, and this in front of unbelievers. Those who should have been looking to him for how to live, those who should have been, to whom he should have been a light, he's openly confessed that he's running from and defying the commands of God. His actions, claiming that he could rebel against God without consequence, were blasphemous. And so his life is forfeit. He tells them to throw him overboard. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. Fearful, they refuse. They don't want to take the chance that they might anger God more, but the storm grows only worse. What's the worst that can happen now? They throw them overboard and they drown anyway? It looks like they're going to drown now. At least if they throw Jonah overboard, they might have a chance at life. One man has to die so that many might have life. Is this a familiar story to you? One man dying so that many might live. It should. Because this is a picture of the grace of God. We read in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 10 that Christ died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. All of mankind is in the same boat today. But unlike these men, we do deserve to die. Each and every one is deserving of death. Why? Because we're sinners. Because it's ingrained into our souls. We're born steeped in sin. We see it coming out in the smallest of children who will steal each other's toys in the nursery, who will push over their siblings because they're bigger and because they can't, who will bully each other in class because it's funny, who will sleep in church because worshiping God is boring, who will spend our money on the newest game instead of those who are in need among us because we'd rather be entertained than help, who will take pot shots at parents co-workers, bosses, consistory members, leaders, government officials, because honoring those who are in authority over you only works when you feel they deserve it, who lie, who cheat, who steal time from one another, who sin in a myriad of different ways, 
That is what all mankind is answerable for. And the wages of sin is death. All that was left was to face that death and to pray for the mercy of God. Now Jonah was no savior. But facing death brought on by his sin would save some. The sailors prayed for mercy from God, the true God, the covenant God. They prayed from, for mercy from Yahweh. You can see that in the capital letters, Lord. They threw Jonah overboard and the storm immediately died. They're safe. They're saved. They've received their salvation. Awestruck, the men return to shore. They offer sacrifices to the Lord, and who knows, maybe this experience brought them to the true God forever. Maybe giving Jonah over to death saved more than just their physical lives. But that's a story we're not told. What we are told is what happened to Jonah. When Jonah should have died, the Lord intervened. The Lord in his infinite grace wasn't done with him yet. He had plans for him. Oh, what mercy God shows. Oh, what love. The wages of sin is death. But God's gift to Jonah is life. A fish comes to swallow him up. And in the belly of the fish, Jonah remains for three days and nights. But God allows him by some miracle to live. God has come to Jonah's rescue. Having surrendered himself to the just judgment of God and having cast himself on God's mercy, for God's mercy alone could save him now, Jonah received salvation. Certainly it wasn't spiritual salvation at this point in time. But it was salvation from his own self-destructive path. God used the disaster to bring him back and having set him once again on the course that he planned out for him. Having showed him grace, God then expected him to respond to that grace. To respond out of thankfulness. Isn't that the picture of where we find ourselves today? What a rich reminder this is of the grace of God that it represents. And that grace is available to all who believe in Jesus Christ. No matter the height from which you fall, no matter how far you run, God's grace is always there. God's grace is always greater. You can fall from the heights of power. You can run to the far side of the sea. But God will still be there. God's grace will still be there if only you turn to him today. Seize on to that promise that we read in Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we cry out to God, when we're facing the consequences of our sin, and we cry out to God, come to Jesus Christ in repentance and in mercy, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ we find the grace of God, and in Christ we find our salvation. In Christ we travel through death, through burial, and we find life on the other side.
Amen.